0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll do this in about 30 minutes because I had to kind of adapt my talk. I know a lot of you, sounds like you have a lot of medical experience in the room. I'm not so much of a cyclist, but I wanted to try to adapt some of that um, to make it relevant to cycling. And uh, my hope is I'll leave enough time at the end, say about 15 minutes, so I can address maybe some specific questions, because I know this talk isn't going to be everything for everybody, so there will probably be some things left out. Um, but just really quick, the California Concussion Coalition was an uh, organization that I co-founded um, with Dr. Cindy Chang, who um, serves as the chief, chief medical officer for the U.S. Olympic team. And the uh, goal and mission of the coalition is to provide education about concussions because we both found that clinically that when people are educated about this injury and know how to properly identify and respond to it that uh they do much better and um, i always say you know i get interviewed for the press and things like that i say if everybody can be educated about this injury then i would be happily out of a job so um so the coalition is a part of a program um a a national nonprofit called the sports legacy institute uh, who was founded by chris nowinski and he's a He's been the guy who's been the fly in the ointment for the NFL um, and pushing a lot of these changes in the NFL. Um. And so this presentation that I'm doing is kind of a mashup of the advanced concussion training that we do for the community and for coaches and parents and administrators. And I've also brought in a few of my own um, slides that I talk about more post-injury recovery, which some of you guys might be more interested in because if you're a cyclist, you might have sustained head injuries yourself. In fact, who is has sustained head injury um, in general, just a uh, concussion in general? Right, and then what about uh, through your uh, cycling? Who's the same head injury? That's pretty, pretty much the same hands. So, um, so we'll talk a little bit about uh, post-injury recovery. I put some of those slides in there a little bit more. All right, so um, I want to start off the talk with a little case presentation. So this was an elite uh, cyclist that I treated a couple of years ago. Um, so we see I put number one there as as her first injury, but this actually wasn't the first injury. It was probably n- injury number two or three, but the, the other ones happened a few years prior. And so she uh, was uh, crashed during descent. Um, she had a, m- a mildly fractured pelvis um, and a dented helmet, so there's clear mechanism in- of injury to the head I mean, if the helmet was dented. Um, she had loss of consciousness and post-traumatic seizures on the uh, side of the road. Uh, she was airlifted to the hospital, discharged that same evening, um a friend stayed with her in the hotel room Uh, she woke up the next morning and had another post-traumatic seizure Um, no medical uh, care was sought at that time Um, flew home that day commercially Uh, no further follow up regarding the head injury as far as what the athlete um, no specific follow-up it was all focused on what her pelvis um, and nothing was really addressed about the, the head injury, excuse me. Um, so, approximately six weeks later, uh, the cyclist went on a training ride, um, uh, uh, training ride on her own, and uh, she crashed, had no recall of actually hitting her, her head, uh, but it was very foggy and out of it for the next uh, several days. Um, no medical follow up regarding uh, that crash. Um so she competed that season, uh had an okay season, but with uh exertion she would have neurological symptoms. Um she had extreme uh exhaustion, chronic fatigue. Um and then um approximately one year later she was at an international elite international event and crashed during warm-up. Um she had facial bruising and abrasion, so again clear mechanism injury on the face. And a teammate actually had to carry her into the medical tent. She was that kind of wobbly and unsteady on her feet. Um, Says so slurring words, sluggish, her balance was off. Uh, she still wanted to race that day. This was a major international event. And she was cleared to race later that day. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, th- from, from when I, my limited experience in elite uh, level cycling, I don't think there's a lot of team doctors like Dr. Stefan. Um, and what you know I looked at those Chris Horner videos uh, from two thousand and eleven um, where he's coming across a finish line and he's like, "What? I finished what's <laughs> going on?" And clearly had a head injury and was um, you know and continued to compete. so uh, not every doctor is, I think, necessarily aware uh, of current management strategies and techniques. So I evaluated this a cyclist approximately four months um, after the last uh, head injury, and she says she was close to 100%. Um, She was still training off-season 25 to 30 hours per week. Um, She had chronic fatigue, poor sleep, um, slow thinking. Um, So I did a full neuropsychological battery of tests on her, and we found that she had impaired complex attention, speed of processing, uh, memory, language fluency, visual-spatial processing. A deficit. So even four months later, she was still quite cognitively compromised, and she was not aware that she had cognitive compromise. She felt like, again, she was 100%. So the treatment was to continue but reduce training demands. Um, I felt that she was uh, burning, and her treating physician I felt that she was burning it a little bit uh, too hard and too long. Um, treated emotional symptoms, addressing sleep difficulties, uh, which are often a pretty common uh, post-concussion syndrome and symptom. And, um, and the sleeping difficulties, it's important to recognize that, yeah, you can address them with um, medications, but you also have to look at the athlete's sleep hygiene um, and address that as well. Um, and uh, no competition until uh, the athlete was fully recovered. Um, so what was going on in this athlete's brain? Uh, so obviously there was a concussion sustained, multiple concussions and uh, we first need an operational definition of what a concussion is. Uh, so we know it's a type of traumatic brain injury uh, caused by a bump, blow, or jolt to the head that can change that you, that the way that your brain normally works. It's important to recognize that a concussion, you don't have to have a blow to, the, blow to your head. You can have a blow to your body that causes your head to rapidly accelerate and decelerate. And that's what's causing the concussion injury. And I've heard this mistaken before. They can't have a concussion because they weren't in the head. Think about a whiplash injury in a car accident. Absolutely enough force to cause this rapid acceleration, deceleration, and movement of the brain inside of the skull. So this is what it looks like. Um, so the brain is consist- consistency of custard or jello, not even really that firmly set jello. Um, And the concussion occurs due to your linear forces where the brain slams into the rough interior of the skull. And this is why um, helmets do a great job of protecting the skull from catastrophic injury. So helmets are really important to preventing death or catastrophic injury. But they don't really do much to prevent against concussions. Because if you look at the way biomechanically a concussion works, it's that brain moving inside of that casing. And so you can add more casing to the casing, and, but that doesn't necessarily protect the brain. It protects the casing, but not necessarily the brain. And so that's a linear force. Interestingly enough, football helmets, some of the more modern and newer um, football helmets, they do a, there's, they've been found that they do a little bit better job of protecting against this linear, just straight on and back um, type of motion. It actually reduces some incidence of concussions. Um, But when you have uh, rotational injuries, which how often do we have an injury in nature where you're going straight forward and backwards, right? It's usually a combination of straight linear forces and rotational forces. Um, and so this can also cause a concussion and actually make a concussion worse is when you have a lot of rotational forces because think about the consistency of the brain, which is like jello or custard, but the brain is not consistently consistent. It has different types of matter within the brain, and so you have different densities. And so as you have a rotational force, you have one force going one way and another force going another, and that causes a lot of stretching and sometimes tearing and um, sharing of uh, brain cells and axons. So this is uh, how a normal uh, cell functions. So you say, "Hey, I want a donut." So you think about the donut. You do your Homer Simpson, mm, donut, right? And so that signal comes. That signal comes to your, um, you know, the the desire part of your brain, and then initiates an action. That action, it gets communicated to the muscle part of your brain, and you grab uh, the donut, right? So that's how it works. Well, in a brain that's injured, what happens is right at the moment of injury, in a concussion, you have this massive electrical event. Um, so it looks we're all old enough in this room to remember old TVs, where if they started kind of haywire and you'd hit the side of them, and they would kind of shock, and then they'd go back into signal, well, that's the exact opposite. You have the shock, but it loses a signal in a brain, basically. I use that... Um, uh, analogy with kids today, and they just look at me like, what are you talking <laughs> about? What, a TV like this, what are you talking about? <laughs> so we have this massive electrical charge. You have this massive re- release of glutamate, and it causes the cells to go, whoa, what's going on? What, what is happening in this electrical charge is basically you start to have this molecular disruption where you have um, intracellular potassium just rushes out of the cell extracellular calcium, calcium rushes into the cell, right? And so what happens is um, you have this metabolic dysfunction. The, the cells are in a state of metabolic crisis. And it's um, during uh, this uh, uh, massive release of neurotransmitters that this interferes with the cell's communication. So this is where your symptoms are coming from. And symptoms vary based on where you have predominantly dysfunctional cells. Um, the nerve cells that are extremely vulnerable in this condition and further injury or stress may cause additional cell death and um, serious cell damage. Okay? But why is this important? Because um, it's when the brain is in this state that it is in this metabolic state and this m- metabolic dysfunction that it's in an energy crisis. Right? And the only way it gets back to its equilibrium is the brain, has to, the brain cells have to activate these pumps, and these, ca- these sodium pumps and calcium channel pumps, and it needs energy to do that, to get this, the chemicals back where they should be to get back to its equilibrium and, and normal functioning state. So it needs energy to do that. But at a time, the brain cannot provide that energy, so it gets into this metabolic dysfunctional state. So what happens that over time is you have... Um, um, uh, cells start to normalize, and after several days, they start to normalize, and then after many days, they get back to their normal neurological functioning. Now, notice I say after many days, because we don't know. Every brain's different. How long does it take to get back to that day? We don't necessarily know. So what is happening in the brain when this occurs is, again, right at the moment of impact. This is from a Hob- David Hobda's work down at UCLA um, right The moment of impact, you have this massive electrical charge. Interestingly enough, you see this little peak in glucose right here? This is the reason why, theoretically, why you don't necessarily always experience symptoms right at the time of injury. The brain is somehow protecting itself from the spike in glucose, where it mass or covers the metabolic dysfunction. Uh, that has occurred and so oftentimes after an injury you'll see athletes so they truly do not feel any symptoms and that this spike in glucose can uh, occur for a few minutes up to maybe an hour or two where truly they're not feeling any symptoms um it won't generally last longer. They'll start to feel symptoms. Symptoms will evolve and change over time, but usually after a few minutes to within an hour, they'll start to feel some symptoms from the result of their blow. And this makes it very difficult to diagnose, especially on the sideline or on the side of the road, because they may not be feeling symptoms. So you really have to trust your eyes or the um, eyewitness reports that there was some sort of metabolic, or excuse me, um, biomechanical force um, and biomechanical injury, some sort of mechanism of injury. Um, so when this brain is in this metabolic state it's called a window of, vulnerabil- window of vulnerability and so returning to play during this time could cause more severe, even catastrophic brain injury so it's unsafe, the bottom line is it's unsafe to return to play and competition until the brain activity has returned to normal you have to protect, as I, as I tell the kids we've got to protect your dome in this state we have to protect your dome we cannot allow it to be re-injured So factors that affect concussion, um, occurrence, we talked about uh, biomechanical, which is acceleration forces, the duration of impact, the location of the impact, and then what sort of tissue strain. So if we have, like I said, rotational forces, that can sometimes cause a disproportionate tissue strain on different structures in the brain, more damage to white matter um, areas. Um, And there's also clinical um, factors as well. history, so the number of um, concussions, uh, the proximity of concussions, so if you have more occurring within a shorter time frame, and the severity of the mechanism of injury. Harder blow is potentially a, a harder, uh, more significant injury to the brain. We know that if the, if the body is able to anticipate a blow and stiffen itself and stiffen the neck, then it can, the, the head can sustain more uh, energy, um, and uh, the body can sustain more of the in- energy and is not necessarily transferred to the head, um, so the injury is not as significant. This is why, like in quarterbacks, for example, those blindsided hits where they're not looking, you know, they're coming from the blind side and they get hit, can be much more significant rather than coming on where they can kind of tense themselves up. Um, we know that age plays a role in it, absolutely. Uh, the younger kids are, the much longer they take to recover, the more easily they are injured. Uh, gender, which I'll get into in just a moment. Uh, hydration we found, you know, if you're not sufficiently hydrated, your brain is more susceptible to uh, injury. Uh, And then under-reporting, we see that culturally with certain athletes and certain types of athletes, they don't want to report that they've been injured. So how do we recognize and identify a a concussion? So we mentioned that there has to be some sort of biomechanical force caused. We know what happens in the brain um, on the molecular level, on the metabolic level. So what's happening from a behavioral standpoint well, we know that, so if you have those, biomechanical force causes a, an injury to the brain, and then you're going to have symptoms. And these are the, a list of symptoms that you can be experiencing, uh, uh, cognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms. I've seen um, a Cal football player once, and he mentioned that he was on the sideline bawling his eyes out after he got hit really hard. And the coach went up to him and said, why are you crying? He's like, I have no idea. And is like just sees just, just that emotional incontinence um, as a result from the injury. Um, we know that there's physical symptoms that athletes will experience. Um, we know that can affect the sleep. Um, so if you have any of these symptoms that we mentioned, and it's after um, some sort of mechanism mechanism of injury that caused your brain to rapidly move inside of the skull. That, by definition, is a concussion. So concussions are, in a way, the easiest thing to diagnose and simultaneously the most complex thing to diagnose because if you have these symptoms after a blow to the head, that is a concussion, but it's not always that easy when you're on the sideline or on the side of the road and or not even on the side of the road while they're following on the team car or something like that, and you have to assess their cognitive state. Um, Just a few facts. Uh, Fewer than 10% of concussions involve loss of consciousness. Um, It's probably even less than 5%. Um, I rarely see a loss of consciousness. Uh, Maybe you see like one or two seconds worth, and no one really knows if they lost consciousness or not, but anything that lasts more than a couple seconds is very rare. And also, interestingly interestingly enough, it doesn't really... um, uh, to, uh, make any difference as far as the severity of the injury. An LOC does not mean the injury is more severe or that recovery is, is going to take longer. Um, a ding or a bell ringer is the same thing as a concussion. I, I hate those words, ding or bell ringers, but when I'm working with kids, I'll say, so tell them, you know, we'll talk about concussions, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I've had one or two, and I say, okay. How many bell ringers have you had? Oh! Oh, yeah, you know, at least six a week. Oh! Okay, well, tell me about those. You know, oh, well, it's you know, I get hit in the head, and I feel a little dizzy, have a headache. How long does that last? Oh, about ten or fifteen minutes, and it goes away. That's a concussion. Um, concussions don't cause pain. You don't you don't have any, uh, brain uh, pain uh, receptors in the brain, and so you don't feel the pain. The symptoms of a concussion, like a headache, which is more of a vascular type of event, um, is certainly causes pain, but your brain doesn't feel pain. So as I mentioned, some symptoms present immediately. Some symptoms are delayed. Um, some athletes will not display any signs or symptoms initially, but symptoms may appear within minutes or hours, as I mentioned. Um, you definitely don't want to underestimate adrenaline or an athlete's ability to rationalize symptoms. And I really think this adrenaline, in addition to the glucose spike, but I really think adrenaline has a lot to do with it as well. There's almost always athletes, which I really don't feel are the ones that will really minimize their symptoms, but they will, as um, um, soon as the game ends, it's like, oh my God, now I feel like garbage. It's just as soon as they come down from that high of playing. Um, with uh, gender and concussion, as I mentioned, the gender does play in the biological clinical history. Uh, so what do we know is that uh, females uh, tend to suffer more, repeated, uh, more reported concussions than males that play the same sport. Um, so, Equivalent for basketball players, they suffer three times more. Soccer players, 68% more. Um, and they also have, tend to have longer recovery times than males in sports. Uh, so why is that occurring? Well, one could be because of honesty. Um, there's there's a, maybe not a different culture machismo where you have to hide your symptoms, and so they're more likely to report concussions. Um, there definitely is a physiological difference related to hormonal uh, differences. And that could account for um, differences. And then uh, biomechanically, uh, they have smaller necks. Women have smaller necks, um, uh, uh, not as much core strength. And so that means that there's going to be more uh, translational force when the body's hit, when the head hits the ground or when the body hits the ground and causes that translational force to get um, um, uh, translated to the the head uh, to cause injury. So why players don't report concussions? Well, historically... Um, the general consensus has been that athletes didn't report symptoms because they didn't want to be held out of the game. Research shows that that, that, that is not necessarily true. Uh, so um, they, the, historically, the, the consensus is that athletes didn't want to report the symptoms because they wanted to keep playing, right? Um, but when we looked at some of the research... We saw that, A, some didn't think it was serious enough, and you get that a lot with the bell ringers. You know, I just felt a little dizzy, and they even kind of brag about, oh, I had such a headache after the game after I got hit ten times. Um, They didn't want to leave the game, sure. Uh, They didn't know it it was a concussion. Um, Research has been showing, in fact, SLI, the group that I work with, they have a community education program and um, some of the research that they're showing that when they educate athletes, they then, and they do follow-up, they show that they're then more willing to admit and report that they've had uh, concussions because now they're more aware of the symptoms and they're more willing to report on their teammates. Um, and they didn't want to let down teammates. A few numbers. Uh, the CDC estimates that between 1.6 and 3.8 million concussions occur. This is sport and recreation concussions occur each uh, year, and this number is probably woefully underestimated because obviously not everybody goes in to see a doctor or into the emergency room so let 's talk about a little bit how we should respond to concussions how do we Uh, we've looked at how we identify it, now how are we going to respond to it, how are we going um, to treat this. Oh, and just think, for some of you guys that have some of the pre-printed talk, um, I did some updating this week and tweaking on it, so this doesn't exactly fit what you all have in your talk, just a little housekeeping item. So how do we use to manage these injuries? Uh, This came out of old guidelines from the um, um, uh, uh, Neurology National Neurology Group. Uh, it's just keeping my name, what the name is. Whatever. Um, they. Uh, so this is from 1997, and uh, this, was a, this was a standard for a long time, and it still is from a lot of uh, uh, medical providers and physicians, that if you had signs and symptoms that disappeared within 15 minutes that you can go back to play. Um, fortunately, um, National Neurology Group has recently, just like within the last couple of weeks, has recently changed uh, their position and released a... Um, a pretty uh, well-written position statement on how to better manage these injuries, um, which we'll go into a little bit here in a minute. But this was an old way in 1997, and uh, we all remember the grading systems, right? Grade 1, grade 2, grade 3 type of concussions. Um, Still some doctors use this, but here's the problem with the grading system. Um, is there's over 20 different types of grading systems. So which one are you using? Are you using the National Academy of Neurology? Or are you using the Cantu Guidelines? Or are you using the Colorado Guidelines? And they're not really based on evidence. They're more based on consensus. Um, so grade one would be a mild, no loss of consciousness. Grade two, brief loss of consciousness. Grade three, loss of consciousness greater than one minute. That would be like the National Academy of Neurologies. Um, but the problem with grading is that... Uh, the grade of the the quote grade of the concussion really makes no uh, difference as far as severity or expected course of recovery. So if you have an athlete, for example, with a grade three, so they lost consciousness for two minutes, but they're fully back to normal three days later. You know, normal neuropsychological functioning, balance functioning, normal neurological exam, absolutely no symptoms, truly back to normal in three days. Versus an athlete who's had a grade one, but they're still symptomatic eight weeks from now. Which is the more severe concussion? I bet you ask the athlete that was symptomatic eight weeks from now which one's more severe. I know what they'll say. So what did the research tell us about that? Well, so we took these grade one athletes. uh, This was a group out of um, um, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And they took grade one athletes. And even athletes who said that they had recovered within minutes of a concussion still showed abnormalities on cognitive testing 36 hours later. So... Really, this evidence, this was especially um, uh, significant for youth athletes, is that no youth athlete recovers the same day of an injury. There is still some sort of pathophysiological process that is occurring in their brain. So the overwhelming consensus guidelines, um, and this came out in 2008 with the Zurich uh, International Symposium on Concussion in Sport, said period, point blank, for youth athletes, if there is a suspected concussion, there is no return same day, absolutely no return the same day. That's a CDC action plan. I'll skip that. Um, so basically what we want to start training coaches to do is that um, if they suspect a concussion, that they're pulled from play. So, of course, that means coaches need to be uh, aware and educated on how to identify concussion injuries. Um, and we don't want them judging the severity of the injury. Uh, we, don't, we just want them recording what they saw, what the symptoms were, and pulling that athlete from play. And then we want them informing their parents or their guardians about some of the signs and symptoms of a concussion. Um, there's uh, lots of great um, fact sheets from the CDC, for example, that you can just have a parent. It says, fact sheet for parents, and you hand that to them, and it lets them know about some of the signs and symptoms of a concussion and uh, things to look out for. And the bottom line is that then that athlete is not allowed to return to play until they're evaluated by a healthcare professional experience in evaluating uh, concussions. Um We know all that. we just mentioned that, so I'll skip that so we have time for question. Uh, this is an important slide here. Not every concussion requires a trip to the emergency room. Um, otherwise, emergency rooms would be pretty inundated, but we do want if I guess they already are, um, but we do want to make sure that if there are certain signs and symptoms that this does require an emergent response. Um, so medical changes. Uh, so basically what I try to tell parents is, um, you know, th- you're going to experience some change in symptoms. You know, you might have a headache for a couple of days and you might start feeling a little dizzy and the headache will go away. Changes in symptoms are fine, but you should not experience a change in severity of symptoms. So if you have a headache, um, you know, that was mild, but then the next day all of a sudden is the most extreme headache you've, you know, you felt. Or you've, you're lucid, you know, for most of the day and all of a sudden you're confused and disoriented those are serious emergency symptoms that could mean, you know, for example, an intracranial bleed. Uh, convulsions are seizures, uh, muscle weakness on one or both sides, persistent confusion, persistent unconsciousness, repeated vomiting. So one, you know, if a kid just vomits once, I wouldn't... Have, I mean, if it was my own kid, I probably would take him to the emergency room. And, and i do this for a living, but, you know, when it's your own kid, it's hard to say, you know, you're going to be freaked out. But... Um, um, actually, a really funny story, really quick. So my kid did hit his head. One, well. he hit his head on the subwoofer and kind of split it open, and you know, and he was a little dazed. He probably he's two or three at the time. And so my wife says, "We have to take him to the doctor. We have to take him to the doctor." I was like, "All right, let's take him to the doctor." So we take him in to the pediatrician, and he looks at him and and we explain to him what happens. So my wife says, "So you know, does he have a concussion?" And like he looks at me and says, "Well, ask your husband." <laughs> 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 what? He talks to me about these. So I was like, see, I told you. He's like, no. I." Understand. He's like, yeah, my wife makes me bring our kids in, too. Um, unusual eye movements, walking problems, dizzy, you know, real significant dizziness or um, uh, uncoordination. Uh, really quick, quick on uh, sideline concussion technology. Um, there's, so first of all, there's no tool or test that can accurately determine 100% of the time when a concussion uh, has occurred. So there's no magic wand. All you can just, especially just uh, being community members, coaches, parents, um, is be aware of the signs and symptoms of a concussion. Uh, Concussions do not show up on CT scans or MRIs. They do not diagnose a concussion. They do not rule out or rule in a concussion. It is a metabolic injury. Remember, we talked about not a structural injury. You will not see structural changes on imaging. Uh, uh, PAR is an educational partner of SLI, and this is a great app. This is a really great app. It's put out by PAR, and it's called the Concussion uh, Recognition and Response App, CRR. And it's on on, uh, Android and iPhone. It's like $3, and it's perfect. You just carry it along with you, and if there's a suspected concussion, it will walk you through different signs and symptoms of a concussion, and you can just monitor um, and rate, not rate, but just mark what symptoms the athlete has. And it's a good tool and device that I really recommend. All right, I want to try to get through this. Uh, so, return to the saddle. Um, return to play, return to the saddle on your bike. Um, so, at the time of the injury, it is impossible to determine when it's safe for an athlete uh, to return. So, symptoms at the time of the injury do not correlate well with the duration of concussion uh, recovery. So, we talked about that. Um, concussions are no longer graded at the time of injury. We talked about that. Whoops. So the only proven treatment for concussion is, both, uh, is rest, which includes both physical and cognitive rest, especially during the acute period. Why do we need that rest? Because you understand now that the metabolic dysfunction needs the energy in order to get the brain back to its normal functioning state. If you're using that energy to you know, continue to exercise even though you're symptomatic or continue to go to work or go to school and you're still feeling like garbage. That's energy that's taking away from recovery. So that will uh, potentially extend uh, recovery. Um, the type of, type of and amount of rest will vary according to each athlete's reported symptoms. I've had parents literally like after a little bump on the head lock the kid in the room for the next three days with the shades drawn. It's like... A little extreme, you know, but some kids absolutely require that. If they're really symptomatic, they truly, they just need to pretend they have the flu for the next two or three days and not do anything. Uh, there's no drug or nutritional supplement that's proven to um, um, accelerate recovery. Uh, with that said, though, I oftentimes do recommend an omega-3 fatty acid supplement, usually about two to 3,000 um, milligrams. So what does the research tell us? So this is some of the post-concussion recovery stuff that's really starting to come out now. The old adage that you completely rest until you are completely asymptomatic. You rest both physically and cognitively until there are absolutely no symptoms. Um, that was kind of how we did things you know, about five or ten years ago. And we don't... We don't want to do that anymore. First of all, that's not consistent with how we treat any other injury. I'm not a physician, but I've had enough sport injuries that you injure something and you stay off it for a while and then you start to get some motion back into it in physical therapy and get it working out again. And the brain's kind of the same way. You want to stay off it during that acute period, but then we have to start allowing some recovery um, and activity back into it to actually facilitate recovery. So uh, does research tell us that we can do that? Well, yeah, absolutely it does. So this um, um, a study looked at the efficacy of cognitive and physical rest in treatment of concussions. Uh, time elapsed between concussions uh, between uh, prescribed rest varied between one to 31 days. So pretty broad range. Um, uh, 49 high school and college athletes. So what did it what did it find? Outcome measure oh, outcome measures were impact testing, which is a computerized cognitive test, and symptom reporting. Results showed significantly improved performance on impact and decreased symptoms after a period of prescribed rest of one or two weeks. So what they did is they took these 49 kids who had concussions, and some had been concussed a few weeks prior, but they weren't resting. They were still going to school. They were still doing sports. They were still doing activities, and they were still very symptomatic, right? And they said, okay, just rest. You need to rest, and they sent them home. They had not do anything for a few days, and lo and behold, their symptoms got much better, Um, So, uh, conclusion is that a period of cognitive and physical rest may be helpful in treating post-concussion symptoms, whether applied soon after a concussion or weeks to months uh, later. On this research here, this is a cohort study with repeated neuropsychological testing and symptom reporting and activity level reporting. 95 high school uh, athletes... And uh, they evaluated the relationship of activity levels to outcomes on neuropsych testing and symptom reporting. And they found that levels of post-concussion activity level correlated with all outcome variables. So if they were kids were doing too much, then they did much worse on cognitive testing and their symptoms were higher. If they did too little, they also didn't do as well. So they found that the best outcome was in those athletes engaged in moderate levels of exertion and activities. This, um, what do they do with the rats? This is a work out of UCLA with David Havda's group. Um, and what they did is they took these rats and they put them in this little device called a fluid percussion device. They peel back the top layer of their skull and the, the rat kind of goes right here and this is fluid. This is like a syringe full of fluid. And what they can do is they can dial back this hammer as far as they want and then they drop it and it goes thunk and it hits this and pushes out fluid, so fluid percussion, and causes a concussion. Right? Not great living if you're a rat in his lab. <laughs> so what they did is they wanted to evaluate whether physical exercise in rats is supportive for recovery in mild traumatic brain injury, MTBI. The exercise was encouraged at the acute period, uh, zero to six days, uh, post-acute period, seven plus days, or delayed, 14 to 20 days. BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, if you can find a way to bottle that and put it in like an energy drink, you would own this entire campus. It would be named after you. But the problem with BDNF is it's endogenous. You can't take it. It has to be um, uh, created inside of you. And how, does it, how is it created? No. Exercise. Exercise. That's how you create BDNF. Why is BDNF good? It's a um, neurotrophic factor that uh, facilitates neurogenesis, synaptic growth synaptic connection, so it's good stuff. What were the conclusions? So rats that exercised zero to six days, no enhanced uh, upregulation of BDNF. Uh, they showed a decrease of cognitive performance. I'm not sure how they got them to sit in front of the computer for so long, but they did not do as well on post-injury. No, they had them do a maze, and they time them how quickly it takes them to do this water maze. Um, and there was a disruption in their molecular response. Don't ask me what that means. That's more for the neuroscientists. Rats that exercise seven days post-injury, so they started their exercise, so they rested for seven days, and then they started rest, uh, exercising, increased regulation of BDNF, and upregulation, and improved performance on cognitive activity. And, oh, I sorry, I missed the slide. The 14 to 21 plus days Still a benefit, but not quite as significant. So they waited too long. If you wait too long, then you're going to start getting deconditioned, and your brain will start getting sluggish. And I definitely see that clinically. I've seen kids that been told to rest for too long, too long, too long. And I see them six, eight weeks later, and they haven't done anything because that's what the doctor told them to do. I want you to completely rest until you're asymptomatic. Well, here's what I tell the parents. Okay, I'm going to stick you in your house. You're not going to leave anywhere. You're not going to leave. You can't watch any TV, and all you have to do is rest. How are you going to start feeling? Might you start feeling fatigued? Might you start getting a headache? Might you start getting cranky? Might your sleep start being affected? Oh, those are all post-concussion symptoms as well. So which is which? So this is what we're starting to do with humans now. Don't worry, we're not concussing humans. Um, We want to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of sub-symptom threshold exercise. So what we do is we look at their symptoms, and I started working with Children's Hospital in Oakland um, and their PT department about getting some of these kids that I have refractory post-concussion syndrome and starting them on exercising. And what we do is we measure their heart rate, we find out what their resting heart rate is, what their max heart rate is, and keep them right around that 60 to 80% and exercise them. They're post-concussive, but we're exercising them. So in this study, they did uh, 12 refractory PCS post-concussion symptom patients, anywhere between six weeks post-injury and 52 weeks post-injury, so pretty um, large uh, swing there. And there's no control group, so a little bit of limitations there. So five to six days a week on the treadmill, as I mentioned, there was a significant reduction in overall symptom reporting, um... And all participants return to pre-injury levels of activity within four to six weeks in the program. So some of these people have been post-concussive for a year, and they're back to their normal activity within a month to six weeks. All right. So conclusions on, re- on recovery research. An initial period of cognitive and physical rest appears to be... Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh yes, There we go. An initial period of cognitive and physical rest appears to be helpful in the acute period. And she says, I don't think it's a concussion although smoke has me a little concerned. Um, the type of rest is dependent on symptom level and tolerance. And length of what I call aggressive rest, so that's where you really do nothing, um, is variable, but research and clinical experience seems to support one to two weeks. But too much, too much physical activity in the acute period of injury may increase symptoms and delay recovery. We don't necessarily know about cognitive activity if, if that will delay recovery. <coughs> but I, I know clinically that when there's too much cognitive activity as well, because they're doing way too much at school, they're not resting, this certainly seems to increase symptoms and delay recovery as well. All right, so I'm going to just skip these, because I want to make sure I leave room for uh, questions. But I do want to end with... Um... Is there audio on this? would have to be that we had to invent the helmet what was happening apparently was that we were involved in a lot of activities that were cracking our heads we chose not to avoid doing these activities but instead to to come up with some sort of device to help us continue enjoying our head cracking lifestyles (laughs) the helmet even that didn't work because not enough people were wearing them, so we had to come up with the helmet law, which is even stupider. The idea behind the helmet law is to preserve a brain whose judgment is so poor it does not even try to stop the cracking of the head it's in. So have fun next time you get on your bikes. Make sure you, wear your, whoops, make sure you wear your helmets. Um, here's more information on the coalition, concussioncoalition.org. Uh, so, again, we're a community-based organization that does education. If you have a if you have an organization that you feel uh, would benefit from concussion education, then you can contact us, and we'd be happy to talk to you about coming out. So we have about 10 minutes uh, for uh, questions. Yes. The question was, um, I'll kind of paraphrase, why does it take some athletes so long to recover? Um, typical course of recovery for a concussion is, most athletes, and these are you know athletes, so um, uh, it's a little different you know, if you're dealing with a 70-year-old patient or something like that. But most healthy adults um, will recover within four to six weeks. This whole notion that 15% of athletes take, or of just the population take a year or longer, that number is way too high and it's based off of real faulty research that was kind of duplicated and duplicated and duplicated but never corrected. Really, the, the percentage is much lower than that. There's so many modifiers when you deal with concussion as far as um, past history of learning disorders, past history of emotional psychiatric problems, past past history of migraines or or headaches. Um, Also, you want to make sure you look at neurovestibular um, uh, dysfunction, um, which can also cause uh, persistent post-concussive syndromes. So there's, there's so many different modifiers that you have to look at. All I know is that a concussion with proper management should get better. And when I start to see athletes and patients that aren't showing a recovery curve and recovery pattern, that is not consistent with the natural history of the disease, and we have to start digging for other things. So I'm, ordering, I'm recommending we're ordering endocrine labs. I'm sending them to PT if there's neurovestibular um, uh, involvement. If there's a psych involvement, I don't care if it's from the concussion or because it was preexisting and now it's been magnified. The treatment's still the same. You treat their psych. You get them in therapy. You get them on medication. But you just have to look at all other modifying factors that could be contributing and not get focused in on just a concussion, which um, is hard not to do because concussions are just full of attribution bias, and and that's what happens. It's like, you know, it's six months later, and you forget where you put your keys. And it's like, well, no, we all forget where we put our keys. But if you had a concussion six months it goes like, oh, my gosh, it's a concussion. I'm not recovering. then all this anxiety comes forward, and then, you know, that starts – Causing people to freak out? Seriously. And, and then it, that alone can cause symptoms to start coming back. So you really have to look at a lot, of, you know, all the modifying, you know, the, the usual suspects. So the post-traumatic uh, uh, seizures, it's, it's really caused from that just sudden electrical surge. And it it literally causes, uh, you know, if somebody has epilepsy where you have this major disruption of electrical activity in the brain. That's basically what is happening. And then you also see a lot of times what's called a fencing posture where the body goes in like that. And that's a very primitive response, um, a primitive motor response where this body goes in this kind of clonic type of posturing. Um, That's a part of just that major electrical disruption. Um, And it's like like an epileptic seizure that's caused from a major trauma. Yeah, no, not, they're different events. A concussion is not an ischemic event. There's not a disruption in perfusion or oxygenation of the brain uh, or brain cell like there is in a, an occlusive stroke, like a, you know, an embolic stroke. Um, so it's not an ischemic event. But they, they share a lot of things in common just because there is a brain injury. So there is some overlap in some of the metabolic and physiological, uh, path, pathological activity that's going on. Yeah, so the question is, um, with psychiatric changes after a concussion, and there can be certainly profound changes with more moderate to severe injuries or repetitive, mild injuries if you start getting a lot of damage to the frontal lobes. And yeah, absolutely, you can start seeing um, mood changes um, as a result of that. Not necessarily... severe changes after just one mild event. But what oftentimes happens from the concussions? is, well, there's two things that occur. One is that concussion, that physio- the, the physiological and metabolic disruption also affects, can affect the way that your um, brain modulates and regulates affect and mood. So that can set off depressive symptoms. And then if you also have a preexisting depression or other psychological difficulties, that can set it off as well and magnify it. And oftentimes, the concussion can just be the precipitating event where the patient is doing okay managing, but their resources are pretty tapped, and then, boom, they have a concussion. It's like, okay, there's no more resources available, and then a lot of these psychiatric symptoms come forward. You're talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and we don't know the answer to that. We... Uh, We do think that there is some hallmark psychiatric symptoms that are part of chronic traumatic encephalopathy that's directly attributable to the pathology in the frontal lobe, and that's what's causing those emotional symptoms, the outburst, the agitation, and the impulsive behavior, um, which could be related to to suicide. We can't draw that conclusion, oh, there's brain injury, therefore you had suicide, but boy, it... You know there's a lot of kind of overlapping things that are going on that there's this research has been going on literally for heavy the last five years, so it is so much in its infancy. I saw something in the background. Was it you, I think, ma'am? The dementia pugilistica, which is now more often referred to as the um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, those movement disorders like ALS, ALS um, parkinson's there's a strong theory that those can absolutely be related to this chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, so it's not necessarily concussions while you're younger, um, but it's the repetitive brain injury that occurs in, in boxing or in um, football, for example. So, yeah, the, you won't know in the moment there's an intracranial bleed, necessarily. I mean, otherwise, or there's like a you know, serious and rapid decompensation um, but those signs, those emergency room signs or emergency care signs, those are what you want to make sure that you look for and monitor and get them in emergent care. Really, within the first forty-eight hours is the kind of the peak window of vulnerability. Very rare. You can have a slow venous bleed that can build up over a few days to weeks, but that's very, very rare. I mean, wouldn't you say that's that's exceedingly rare? Something like that to happen? Yeah. Yes. So the question was, should you break your bones or break your head? Um, break your bones. Yeah. No, we just know that if you're able to tense your neck and prepare for a blow, that that is not as much. It's a, it's, it's reducing the whipping action, right? And um, also you're absorbing more of the energy. So I don't know what that necessarily means. You just have to do your best, you know, judo fall and... You know, I don't, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. It's a conundrum to be sure. Because they also say, like in a car wreck, if you're relaxed in a car wreck, you sustain less injuries. But I know if I'm like, you know, somebody's about to barrel into me, I'm grabbing my steering wheel and tensing up hard as I can to try to absorb some of that blow. One last question. Yeah. So the question was um, about cognitive testing, and if you don't have a baseline, what do you do? And that's a really good question. Um, baselines are. Um, they're nice to have, but they're not absolutely necessary. And, you know, as a neuropsychologist, I test people all week, you know, and I'm m- making inferences on based on how they're functioning. I don't have any baseline on them. So you really have to employ your clinical skills in trying to get a sense, which means that you have to r- do a really good clinical history on the patient to know what they were functioning like before the injury um, occurs. So for example, the high school athlete, this is a 4.0 student. They did monsters on their SATs and they're off to Cal and I give them a post-injury testing and they're kind of low average borderline range, right? You know, you can say, oh, that's pretty normal, but no, that's not normal for that kid. Whereas the other kid who, you know, got C's and has a learning disability and stuff, that could be not as, not as worrisome. That could be more a normal level for him. Okay, We actually, we got to wrap it up or we going to take one more. One more. Okay. Well, so the question was about hydration and how that might affect the impact of the injury. I don't know the exact answer to that from a neuroscience standpoint, um, but we just know, just think about when you're uh, underhydrated, how sluggish you feel um, and how not good you feel. So you have just that much less further to fall mm-hmm. versus when you're in an optimally hydrated and functional state, then your brain can sustain, has more resiliency potentially to sustain an injury and might not have as significant of an effect. And I can imagine the same would hold true if you're overhydrated and maybe you're hyponatremic or something like that. And so there's, there's already kind of a metabolic kind of dysfunction going on and glucose levels in your brain are a little bit affected. And so it's going to be even that much more affected once that uh, uh, pathological event occurs. I'm sure neuroscientists are going go, oh, Dr. Friedeck, that's the most ridiculous. <laughs> but that's, that, that's, when I'm, that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.